0: Amen. There you go. Claude and Debbie lead our prayer team. They're going to have an instrumental role in uh, leading the prayer and worship services, and we're really, really excited about that. Amen. Well, it was a blessing that he was able to hand the mic down to me because I was concerned about being out of breath
1: when I got up
0: there. Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your presence today, for your word that we're about to receive. Let our hearts God, be receptive and let your word cause us to grow in faith. Bless the pastor in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Claude. Um, We are continuing. uh, We're continuing this week our series, The Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. And we're going to explore an amazing passage, an amazing book of the Bible today. One of the actually one of the most controversial books in the Bible. It's the book of Esther. Uh, and there, re, there are a number of reasons for the controversy. Uh, one is that, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes. But Esther, nowhere in Esther is the name God mentioned. And you may say, well, that's strange. This is a book in the Bible, and it's you know it's nine chapters long, and not once do they mention God. Um, and I think there are some fascinating reasons for that. Uh, but it's it was a it was a controversial book in the early um, in the you know sort of ancient israelite uh uh, times where they were trying to determine what books should be in the canon of scriptures and what shouldn't and ultimately it was it was determined that this is authoritative and this is um you know inspired but there was a discussion about that um this is a book that we're going to read today the book that in the 1940s adolf hitler banned the jews in poland from reading this book this was the one book that he found to be threatening to his regime. And so he actually had the scrolls, all of the scrolls of Esther that he could, uh, that he could had them destroyed and forbid the Jews in Poland from reading this book because of the power and the message of this book. Uh, so this is an amazing, uh, amazing book. Um, and I'll give you just a little bit of background, just a little bit of history on it before we jump straight into it. Um, uh, This is sort of a map of the Persian Empire. If you look over here, you can see Israel over here in sort of the, I guess it would be your lower left-hand corner. Um, Back in about 587 BC, the uh, the, uh, Babylonians came and they took over Jerusalem. They destroyed Solomon's temple and the Jews were put under the oppressive regime of the Babylonians. About 50 years later, uh, the Persians came and took over from the Babylonians. And so the Jews that lived in and around Israel were dispersed and exiled all the way across through the Middle East. If you look over to the far right of the screen, you see Persia there, uh, which is modern-day Iran uh, or Iran. And, and there's, that is where this story takes place. It's about 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. And that is where this story takes place. It was take, taken place after this, um, this exile. Uh, and I'm going to tell you the story of Esther because it's nine chapters long. So I thought you might not want me to read the entire thing to you like I did last week. But, um, uh, but I'm going to tell you the story. Um, so one of the Jews that was exiled over in Persia was a faithful Jew named Mordecai. Uh, and he had been exiled there from Israel. And he had a cousin. And his cousin had a daughter. And the daughter's name was Esther. Esther's parents died. And Mordecai took her into his home and raised her as his own daughter. So our heroine of the story today, Esther, is, was an orphan. Uh, and Mordecai raised her. Now, there was a king, the king of, of this area of Persia... And his kingdom extended basically from India to Ethiopia. I mean, he, at, at the time of his reign, he had a massive kingdom. Um, and uh, his name was Xerxes. And Xerxes had uh, a wife that um, didn't always do exactly what he wanted her to do. Uh, there's a, the story opens in the book of Esther where Xerxes is throwing this massive party. And he's showing off his wealth to anyone who cares to, to hear about it. Inviting everyone in to, to see all the displays of his grandeur and his wealth and his power. And Xerxes starts drinking at the beginning of the week. And he throws a party and they're drinking all week long. And the scripture uh, is, you know, says that, that he got elevated with wine. Which I think means he got wasted with wine. Um, and decides that he wants to have his wife come in. Uh, and display her beauty. Her name was Vashti. He wanted to have Vashti come in and display her beauty to the court. Uh, Vashti refuses and says, I'm not going to do that. Uh, The king, in a drunken rage, decides to have her thrown out of the court. Throws her out of the court, and he decides that he's going to get a new queen, a new wife. And so he puts the APB out all across Persia and says, I want all of the young, single virgin, unmarried women to come so that I can choose my wife from among them. And Esther was just reaching that age. She was a young woman uh, and she was single. And, uh, and so she was taken to the palace for the king to assess, if you will. Um, so the king is looking at all these women and he's talking to them and there's a, there's a long process. And he ultimately chooses Esther. He says, "This is the one that I like. this is the one that I want to be the queen. now, Esther did not reveal her ethnic identity to the king, so they're over in Persia. the Jews are a uh, you know at, at this point they're a sort of subclass in Persia, according to the you know the power structure there, and so she didn't reveal to him that she was Jewish. she didn't reveal to him that she was an Israelite, so he didn't know, nobody knew, but he chose her and said, "This is the one." Um, that I want. There was another character in his court, a guy named Haman. Haman was a very high ranking, noble prince in the court. Uh, And he was such a high ranking official that there had been an edict by Xerxes that said, you know, if anybody sees Haman walking around in the street, you are required to show obeisance to him. You're required to bow down to him. Uh, So whenever Haman went anywhere, everybody had to, you know, sort of, kowtow to him well the, mordecai has esther's uncle who was a god-fearing jew just said i'm not going to bow down to a man i don't i bow down to god but i don't bow down to men so every time haman walked by there's one guy standing up mordecai everybody else is bowing down and of course this gets under haman's skin and haman starts to say you know who is this guy He starts to talk to his counselors. His counselors say, oh, the guy's name is Mordecai. He's a Jew. And Haman says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not only going to take, I'm not only going to have Mordecai put to death. I'm going to have all of the Jews in this region exterminated, annihilated. This is the first instance in the scripture where we see uh, a reference to a complete and total genocide of an entire ethnic group. And Haman says, I'm going to have them all wiped out. And he writes up this edict, and he has it distributed, and he has it posted on the walls. And on the thirteenth day of Adar, uh, uh, or Adar, they're going to have a mass slaughter. And the the edict basically says, if y- if you are not Jewish, you are entitled to find any Jews in your neighborhood, and destroy them, and take all of their possessions, and take all of their wealth. And and this edict was distributed all throughout the region. Um, and, and it was posted on walls, and everybody knew that this is this is the edict. So Mordecai, of course, learns of the edict, and the scripture says he tears his clothes, and he puts sackcloth and ashes, and he begins to mourn outside of the city gates because of what the impending peril that's about to happen to him and his people. Um, before, well, i I'll get my story straight, but I think it was right before that... Um, Actually, that's right. Right before that, um, Mordecai had been, before this edict went out, Mordecai had been at the city gate, and he heard two of the king's nobles or, or eunuchs actually talking, and they were plotting to kill the king. And Mordecai got a hold of Esther and said, I need you to tell the king that there's a plot to take his life. And so Esther went to the king, who she was now married to. And she told him, there's a plot to take your life. My uncle Mordecai, my second cousin Mordecai, uh, has told me this. And so the king thwarts the plot to kill him. And in the annals, in the records of the city, they write Mordecai's name down. And say, there was a man named Mordecai, and he thwarted a plot to kill the king. And they write that down. Okay, that's important because that book comes up a little later. Um, Then this edict goes out to kill all the Jews um mordecai is terrified uh and goes to esther and he says you need to go back to the king and you need to reveal yourself to the king and you need to tell the king who you are you need to tell him that you're a jew and you need to tell him that haman has ordered the destruction of you and all of your people well esther hears her uncle say this and says well the problem is if i go before the king I haven't been, but the king hasn't called me to his presence for 30 days. If I go to him without being explicitly invited, then I face the threat of being killed. Because the law of the land is, you know, don't call us, we'll call you, is essentially the king's perspective. You don't come to the king unless you're invited. And if you're not invited and you show up in the king's presence, you are subject to being killed unless... He extends his scepter to you and accepts your presence, okay? So so she says, I can't go before the king. I'll be killed. Mordecai's response to her is very clever. He says, you're going to be killed anyway. Don't think that you're going to avoid uh, this edict. It's going to be found out that you're Jewish and you also will be killed. And what's more, he says, there will be restoration. There will be restoration deliverance for the jews he says there absolutely will be deliverance for the jews and who knows but that you were born and put into your position for such a time as this to be the one to redeem and restore and deliver the jews he says god he doesn't say god because the book doesn't mention god but he says there will be redemption there will be deliverance and who knows but that it might be you To be the implement, the tool. To make that deliverance happen. So she says, "All right, well tell everybody to fast. And she's working up her courage. And she fasts. And finally one day she walks in. Three days later she walks in. To the king's court. The king is sitting all the way at one end of the court. And she's standing all the way at the other end. And he looks across the court. And he sees her. And he looks. And there's that moment. Where she thinks, is he going to. Raise his scepter and accept me, or is he going to have me beheaded? Uh, And he raises his scepter, and he says, come to me. And she comes, and he says, what can I give you? Up to half my kingdom, what do you want? And she says, I want to invite you and Haman to a feast at at my place uh, in in the palace. And he says, great, we'll come. So that night, Haman and the king go to Esther's quarters, and she has a lavish feast for them. And the king says, what can I give you? What, what do you need? What do you want? And she says, well, if I've pleased you, uh, then what I would request is a private, you know, uh, dinner again tomorrow night with you and Haman. And the king says, great. And Haman is loving this because H- Haman is, is feeling like, wow, I'm getting a lot of face time with the boss. And uh, now the queen likes me too and everything is going great. Um. That night, Haman leaves the dinner, a little bit a little bit intoxicated. Wow. Um, I thought that was coming through the speaker. Uh, <laughs> yes, Lord? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Haman has a little has a little wine, gets a little elevated, he goes home, and on his way home, who does he see in the city gate? Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow. Alright? Haman is. Now he's a, little bit, he's a little bit more full of himself. He's a little bit full of wine, and he's being insulted again. So he goes home and talks to his wife and talks to his counselors, and they're kind of encouraging him and saying, you know, hey, these guy, this guy shouldn't act this way towards you. The next morning, bright and early, Haman orders a gallows to be built for the hanging of Mordecai. He instructs the men of the province to build a 75-foot gallows, which is about twice the size of this theater, of this building. Uh, a massive gallows where he's going to sh- make an example of Mordecai and hang him. So that's his, that's, you know, has breakfast, orders the gallow built. Then he goes to the king, and he's going to ask the king, he's going to tell the king about uh, um, killing Morde- uh, Mordecai. But meanwhile, that night, the king wasn't able to sleep, uh, didn't have Hulu, wasn't able to get on the Internet. Um, and so he had one of his guys come and read the book of records. Remember the important book of records that we talked about? So one of his, one of his servants comes and, and starts reading the book of records. And he reads that passage about this guy named Mordecai who saved the king's life by thwarting the assassination attempt. And that's what he's reading in the middle of the night. He's up all night. Haman comes in in the morning. Haman's about ready to say, hey, I'm going to have this guy Mordecai killed. But before he gets the chance to say that, the king says, Haman, let me ask you a question. If I wanted to honor someone in the kingdom, I wanted to really elevate someone that has done that has really pleased me, what should I do for them? Well, of course, Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. And so Haman says, well, I, you know, I mean, what I would do... And your shoes is I would put that man on your horse. And I would put your robe on him. And I would put a crown on his head. And I would have one of the nobles from your court lead him through the city. And they should pronounce you know, to everyone within hearing that this is what is done for a man who pleases the king. And he's thinking this is going to be awesome. Right? And the king says, "Hey, man, that is a fantastic idea. There's a guy named Mordecai that I'm very pleased with. Would you mind to get my horse, lead him around the city, put, your, put my robe on him, put a crown on his head, and holler out to everyone who cares that this is how the king treats someone that pleases him. Of course, this makes Mordecai very, very unhappy. Uh, uh, sorry, Haman, thank you. Uh, but he does it. Um, that night, it's, it's the second feast. So, Haman, the king... And Esther come together for the second feast. And they're having the feast. And the king says, Esther, what is it that you want from me? What can I give you? Up to half my kingdom. And she says, musters up her courage and says, King, if if I've pleased you, then I'm going to ask that you save my life and the life of my people. And he says, what are you talking about? And she says, there has been an edict that was drafted and sent out to all of the areas wherein my people are going to be killed. And the king says, who would dare to do this? And by this time, Haman is sort of backing, (laughs) looking for the exit. Uh, Check, please. Um, And Esther says, this guy, Haman, he has tried to Uh, He's sitting out an edict, and he wants to wipe out all of my people. I'm a Jew, I'm an Israelite, and and I'm begging you to save us. It's interesting what the king does, because up to this point, he's made some pretty rash decisions, sort of, you know, breakneck decisions. In this moment, he says, excuse me, I'm going to go walk in the courtyard and cool off. He steps out, and he's thinking about it, okay? Haman, who is now in the room with Esther, throws himself at Esther, essentially where she's sort of lounging on a couch— throws himself at her and starts to beg for his life right about that time the king comes walking back in and he says are you going to assault my wife right in front of me right after i found out this information in a very uh um, in a in a moment of irony another servant comes in and says oh haman by the way the gallows that you instructed us to build this morning they're done we're good we got the permits pulled, and everything is built, and everything is set. And uh, you're ready, we're ready to hang Mordecai. Okay. The king says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Haman, you're going to be hung on the gallows. Uh, Esther, your people are going to be, be saved. Get Mordecai in here. I'm going to give him my signet ring. I'm going to give him Haman's position. I'm going to put my robe on him. I'm going to make him the noble that takes the place of Haman. And he's going to craft an edict that says, on that 13th day of Adar, anyone who attacks a Jew is, uh, should be prepared to defend themselves. Because all of the Jews in the land are, are expressly given permission uh, to fight back. Um, and so, that is what happens. Essentially, uh, uh, Mordecai takes the place of Haman. The attack happens. The, the Israelites uh, stand their ground. Those who attack them are killed. And there, be, and there is a massive feast and a massive celebration that takes place after that point. And that is a feast that, to this day, uh, Jews celebrate. It's called Purim. And if, uh, here in New City, if you go in the more of the Orthodox neighborhood, uh, you know, on Purim, which happens around March, you see a bunch of kids with costumes on and funny hats, and they're celebrating, and they're celebrating this moment. In history, this moment—the moment of Purim—so that is the story of Esther, Um, and it's a it's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story, and there are just a few themes that I want to draw out of this story that I think apply to us, and that I think are powerful uh, for us. And the first theme is that God's justice is perfect, even poetic. God's sovereignty provides perfect consequences for good. ...and for evil. Uh, in our world... ...justice is not... ...perfect. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about... Uh, a, a, ...a man uh, that I... ...is a pro bono client... ...for, for us, for me... Um, ...who was put in jail... ...wrongly put in jail... Um, ...and... Uh, the, ...the great outcome of this... ...is that he's going to be released... ...on June 14th. Um, so... But, you know, the justice is not perfect. So, so this, this man spent four years in prison, shouldn't have been in prison for those four years. Our sense of justice, though we try, is not perfect. This story is trying to tell us that God's justice is perfect. It's even poetic. Um, and, and what do I mean by that? This, this, this idea of poetic justice is the idea that the reward or the punishment perfectly fits the crime, or the, the, the good act um, that it, that it, to which it correlates, okay? Uh, I'll give you an example. This is an example of poetic justice. My neighbor told me about this. Uh, there was a young man who was applying to be in a um, graduate program at Washington University. Very much wanted to be in the program, but didn't really want to put in the work to draft his own, um, his own statement. Uh, and so he decided to plagiarize uh, from an academic article that he thought would be really impressive to the committee who would be reviewing his application. So he plagiarizes a significant portion of this article, and he puts that in his application, and he submits the application. (laughs) Little does he know that the professor reviewing the application is the author of the article which he plagiarized. Um, (laughs) So it's just one of those moments of poetic justice. Obviously the guy didn't didn't get in. I did read another incidence of poetic justice. I'm I'm a bit hesitant to tell it but I, I will tell it. Um, just because it's, you know, we're, cel- we're we're thinking about Purim and we're celebrating and and but um there was a there was a man a young man in Seattle who wanted to fill up his car with gas, but rather than pay for the gas, there was a retired uh, family that had pulled in to the area in a in a mobile home. And so the young man decides that he's going to siphon gas out of the motorhome from this retired couple and put it into his own car. What he didn't know is that there are two tanks in a, in a motorhome. One tank for gasoline and one tank for sewage. Um, <clears throat> you know, at dusk, it's hard to tell which is which. Um, let's just say that his car didn't run very well after that. Uh, and we'll just leave it at that. So... Uh, poetic justice the this, the scripture the scripture in esther shows us two really perfect examples of poetic justice one is you know the moment where where he says uh where haman says you should put the man that you want to honor put him on a horse and put the ring on him put the and of course it turns out that mordecai ends up on that horse the other example is is the gallows you know he builds the gallows for the purpose of hanging uh uh, Mordecai, and then Haman is hung on his own gallows. Uh, Haman tries to destroy, destroy Mordecai and Mordecai ends up taking the position of Haman. The scripture is basically trying to tell us that God's justice is perfect. God's justice is absolutely perfect. The, the punishment always fits the crime perfectly, okay? In Deuteronomy uh, 32 and 4, it says, God's works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now, the question that immediately arises for us is this. How can God's justice be perfect? When you and I look at the world, we don't see God's justice being perfect. We see a tornado in Oklahoma coming through and destroying innocent families and people dying, and we don't understand ...how this fits in with God's justice. The problem of evil, the problem of sin, the problem of pain... ...these issues that we see in life are very prevalent. In fact, they're a very serious uh, issue that Christians have to address... ...and we have to wrestle with. Um, But I I would counter with this. And that is, we are seeing a sliver in the eternal landscape... Of God's providence, we're seeing one frame in a million-mile movie, and we don't. Well, this is all we get to see right now. Our little time, our little span on Earth is right here. God's justice spans eternity. God's justice, the scope of God's justice, spans all of eternity, and it's hard for us to. It's hard for us to say you know, I see how God's justice works perfectly. I see how God's justice always fits. Sometimes we do see it, but sometimes we don't. And the scripture tells us in um, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What does that mean? Does that mean that we shouldn't think critically? Does that mean that we shouldn't think deeply about the problems and the issues in our world no what it means is that there's got to be a point as a christian where we humble ourselves we say god i ca- I-, I-, I cannot understand everything nevertheless i trust that is a it's, that's not an intellectual decision it ultimately comes down to a moral decision it comes down to the question of am i going to have the pride and hubris ...to say that I have to understand all that is before I can trust in God? Or am I willing to say there might be some things in the universe... ...that I cannot fully comprehend as a finite creature that, you know, about an infinite God? And that is a moment that I think all of us face. And the scripture is teaching us that when we do that... ...it doesn't mean we hang up our brains at the door. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue very seriously... Uh, the questions that, that are posed to us as Christians. But what it does tell us is that at some point in our lives, we do have to say, I may not be able to grasp everything. I'm just a human. There's, there's got to be a, there's, got, there's a moment of humility that happens. Um, there's one thing that I understand, and that is that there are limitations to my understanding. Um, and so God is calling us to exercise that humility. Isaiah 55 9 says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher as are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher than your thoughts there is a there is a basic biblical truth that god is bigger than us that god is infinite god is divine god is sovereign and we are not um and so just having the heart and the courage and the humility to say, all right, I'm going I'm to take that step. I, I'm going to still trust you even though I can't fully comprehend you. Um, the next theme I think that arises in this uh, passage is that God's justice requires human action. You and I are called to address the injustices in our community and in our world. Let's get back to the quick question of why is God not mentioned in the entire book of Esther? Is it an oversight? Did the scribes, did the writer of the book of Esther forget to mention God? What's fascinating is that throughout the book, the writing keeps getting right up close to saying, and God will da-da-da, but then it doesn't. Nowhere in the book of Esther is God's name mentioned. And there's controversy about, about this. Why is this? I think there are two reasons. Number one, I think the writer of Esther is trying to communicate this to us. That sometimes God is working in our presence, in our life, even when we don't see him. Even when we can't expressly say, God is doing this. God is working in our life. And the other reason I think that God is not mentioned here, and perhaps more importantly, is that God is or that the writer is trying to say that God's justice, God's sovereignty, God's will on earth is sometimes... Enacted by people, God uses us to bring about justice on the earth. Sometimes there's a burning bush. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's a voice from heaven. Sometimes there's not. There's not. Sometimes God shows up when you put your arm around a brother who's struggling and say, "Hey, let me help you out. Let's talk. Let me hear you out." Sometimes God shows up when you just take somebody out to lunch who needs to open their heart and express themselves sometimes god shows up when you decide to step up for someone who can't defend themselves so god shows up through you and through me that's what i think god is saying in the book of esther there's a great quote from the scholar frederick Douglass, orator writer and abolitionist and 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 a former slave who had escaped slavery i love this line he says Praying for freedom never did me any good until I started praying with my feet. Um, Sometimes God is saying, I've given you the tools, I've given you the equipment, go, I'm with you, go, be the hands and feet of Christ on the earth, do the thing, make the world the way you think it should be, like be Christ to the people who need Christ, step out and do it. Um. And and that's why I love that that moment where Mordecai is talking to Esther. And I'll quote it here. He just says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's going to happen. We're not going to be slaughtered. There will be deliverance for us. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's saying, look, it's going to happen with or without you. But God has put you in a particular moment in time, in a particular moment in history, so that you can step up and enact God's justice here on the earth. You can be God's tool for deliverance. Amen? Matthew five fourteen sixteen 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Sometimes God's calling us to be Him in the world. Amen? I got a letter this week from Operation Food Search. Uh, You you know, uh, many of you know that Alex Saggy, Is Alex here today? Alex Saggy put together a um, food drive. There he is. Put together a food drive. You know, saw a need. Some hungry kids in our community saw a need. Put together a food drive. You people showed up, brought food, and, you know, ended up delivering a bunch of food. I got a letter this week that says... um, Thank uh, thank you for your congregation's collection of 407 pounds of food. These donations are valued at $687.83 and fed 113 people for one day. 113 people. We are grateful for Alex Saggy's support in spearheading this food drive on our behalf. Sometimes it's the people of God that have to show up and bring justice to the world. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes God doesn't come down in a bolt of lightning. Sometimes it's just you and me. Amen? I, I imagine this church filled up with people who are desperately in need of God. I see this church filled up with people who have had drug addictions, who are prostitutes, people recovering from all manners of problems in their life. I see it filled with students who are seeking out to know more about God. I see it filled with people from all manners of walks of life who are engaging the gospel and deciding to live out their life and to glorify God in whatever it is that they do. We are all called to ministry. Every single one of us, you and me, every single one of us, in our own particular way, are called to be ministers of the gospel. Amen. I'm going to keep moving forward. I could could preach on that for a while. Um, And finally... The third theme is that God's justice results in deep joy for those who worship him. Um, I sat down this week. Uh, I went and got a haircut this week. And I, the, the woman that was cutting my hair was one of these people who, you know, they, she could see the dark side of everything. Um, I, I sat down. And I said, hey, how you doing? She said, uh, well, my allergies are acting up. She says, she says, you know, St. Louis is the worst city in the whole world for allergies. And I'm thinking, well, I, really? I mean, I don't know. I don't have the data, but but really? I mean, come on. Sure, is it? Okay, okay, sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, Debbie. <laughs> okay, okay, well, all right, we're getting a lot of affirmations, so maybe this isn't such a great example. But anyway. Um, <laughs> and I say, um, so how, you know, how's, how's business here at, at Great Clips? She says, uh, you know, the people have just been really rude lately. It's really, really rude. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, um... It was a really beautiful day that day. I go, well, it's pretty nice out there today. She says, you know, it's supposed to rain uh, this afternoon. <laughs> I was like, okay, um, I'll just leave it at that. You just go ahead and cut the hair and settle out." Some people just, they find the negative in anything. Um, what is amazing about this is that the Jews have turned this into a, a, a time of great, great celebration. Um. In Esther eight, uh, chapter uh, chapter eight fifteen through seventeen, it says that after Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, in royal robes of blue and white, a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen, on his head uh, a crown on his head, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. We are here today to celebrate god's justice in our lives as christians we believe that christ came to deliver us there was an edict out for us and his sacrifice is to save us redeem us and deliver us from the 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 death and sin and we celebrate that we rejoice the scripture is replete with with recommendations and commands that we rejoice It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In his presence there is fullness of joy, at his right hand there is pleasure forevermore. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It says, even when things are not going well, even when you are in mourning, even when things are sad, there can be an underlying sense of joy about the fact that there's a God who loves you and wants to deliver you and wants to save you. For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So that's what I'm going to end with today. Is to say God is good. God loves you. God's justice is perfect. And that he wants to deliver you. And he's calling us to rejoice in him. He's calling you to be the instrument of justice on the earth. And he's calling us to rejoice in that calling. Amen. There's a little um, a little song um, Adelaide Pollard, who was a woman uh, who wanted to go on the mission field and was having trouble raising the money, went to a prayer meeting and, and heard, a, heard someone else singing uh, and praying. And the, the, other, the older woman who was praying was saying, Lord, just have your way with me. Do with me what you want. And Adelaide Pollard wrote that song that many of you probably know. And it says, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You know that song? You are the potter. I am the clay, mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. I think if we could all make that song our call to God today. God, let me be, let me be the implement in your hand to bring justice and joy and courage and strength to the people in my world to the people at my work, to the people in my school, to the people at church. Everywhere I go, God, let me be that person. Let me be a source of deliverance. Let me be an instrument of joy and gladness for your will. Amen? Amen. So rise to the occasion. Amen? Let's be like Esther and rise to the occasion. Let's pray. Amen. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this amazing story. Uh, this beautiful story of redemption, this beautiful story of deliverance is a story both of encouragement and, Lord, it's also a, a challenge, a challenge to us to go forth and be the person that you've called us to be, to accept the calling that you put on our hearts, Lord. We know that you've called us to be your light, to be the salt of the earth. And, God, we ask you to give us the strength today to do that. We rejoice in you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, This is a time right here.